Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. When I am traveling, I like to watch the headline news around the world in 30 minutes because I can get a summation of the news without all the commentary that I don't need. They sometimes give you the news like you can't think for yourself. And I like to watch it where I can just get the news and I can figure out for myself what I think about that. And it's the reason I read USA Today is because I don't get a bias, I just get facts and then I can figure out myself what I think about that. And uh, this is kind of like Mark's Gospel. Mark hits the high points of the life of Christ. He doesn't go into a lot of detail. He's uh, on a fast-paced journey. It is staccato-like in its uh, approach to the accounts. There's no debate. There's no discussion. Uh, there are no apologies. There's nothing that's uh, formulated. It merely handles the factual situations in the life of Christ so that you and I can study them and learn from them. This is one of four perspectives on the life of Christ. There are four given, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are four different writers, and yet before the foundation of the earth, the Holy Spirit designed it that there would be four distinct portraits of Christ. With Matthew, you see an emphasis on the royal line of Christ, the royal lineage of Christ. He emphasizes the fact that Jesus is the root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He takes great pains to talk about the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the promised one to the Jewish people. He was writing to a primarily Jewish audience. With Luke, you deal with more with the humanity of Christ. Luke uses Jesus' favorite term for himself, and that is the Son of Man. Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man more than any other term of all the terms used for Messiah. With Mark, you see an emphasis on servanthood, on the servanthood of Jesus. And with John, you see an emphasis on the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, on his deity, that he was the second person of the Godhead. Now, it is interesting to note as we begin this study that all four gospel accounts were written while witnesses to the life of Christ were still alive. These were not second-generational accounts. Mark writes, spinning off of what he had heard Simon Peter say. He wrote to a primarily Gentile audience that was in Rome and under great persecution. All of these wrote with a different perspective, and yet all of them tell one story. If there were error or contradiction, or if there was falsehood in the accounts of the life of Christ, then critics of the time, enemies of Christ, enemies of Christianity, would have raised those objections at that time, and they would have refuted the Gospels, and thus we would know that Jesus was a liar. But these accounts have stood the test of centuries. And no criticism of these accounts has ever taken a stand that lasted. So I will go on the basis that what Mark says is true and inerrant and inspired and is for us profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. There's an introduction to this passage that you need to understand. First of all, that it was written probably between 50 and 65 A.D. It has been called the missionary gospel. It's a theological pamphlet, if you will. 
It's like a track compared to the other Gospels. It's very short and very brief. It is possible that at this time, Simon Peter and the Apostle Paul had both been martyred. The church needed encouragement. The church needed a word of encouragement. And so I want to read this morning just verses 1 through 8 as we begin our study in the Gospel of Mark. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And as he was preaching and saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, and I am not even fit to stoop down and to untie the thongs of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mark emphasizes the fact that Jesus Christ was a servant and that John came to serve a purpose. It is interesting that in 2 Timothy 4 and in Acts chapter 13, Mark is, is called a servant of Christ. Mark had this concept of servanthood wrapped up in his head. And in his life and in his actions, people considered him a servant of Christ. The Greek word that is used there is huperates. It means one who is an under rower. The one who is underneath the hull of the ship, who is inside, underneath, manning the oars and doing the lowliest work. It is the lowest form of slavery. There are five different words that are used in the Greek language for servant. The first one is the word from which we get the word angel or messenger. In Revelation, that word messenger or angel is used to refer to the pastor of the churches and the churches that Jesus speaks to in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. The other word is the word for apostles. Apostolos, we get the word apostles from. Apostles were servants of Christ and of the church. The third word is diakonos, from which we get the word deacon. Deacons are servants of the body of Christ. The fourth word that you use is the word that we translate liturgy, and it refers to somebody who ministers in spiritual matters or in spiritual things. And then the fifth word, which is the one used for Mark, is the one that refers to the under rower, the servant, the huperates of God. What Mark is trying to say is the glory of God is revealed in one who stoops to serve. John stooped to serve the Master. Jesus left His home in glory to come down and to serve and to show us what being a true servant was all about. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, The glory of God is not only found in His power, majesty, might, and dominion. The true glory of God is in His grace. The lowliness and death of Christ are the glory of God. Other attributes are but the fringes of the brightness of God's love. God's glory is God's grace. 
Now, what is the theme of Mark? The theme of Mark is that God is identifying with man. Mark wants to make it very clear that Jesus came to identify with man. And you will see Jesus dealing with individuals in this gospel as much as with any other. There are accounts and instances of his dealing with people. In fact, 23 times in this gospel, the reactions of people to the life of Christ are recorded. Anytime Christ comes into contact with people, he brings about a reaction. They will respond or they will reject him. But he is writing to talk about this man and God identification. The key verse is chapter 10, verse 45, which says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Servanthood is a lost word in our society. We emphasize celebrities, not servants. We emphasize heroes and figures, not servants, not the people who serve humanity and serve in the public interest. We don't ever emphasize those people. I, I watched the Democratic Convention as much as I could this week. So it, I kind of flipped the channels a lot. Of course, everybody had it on. You don't meet many politicians that would fit the role of public servant anymore. Now you meet a lot who will tell you whatever it takes to get elected. They will promise you the farm and won't give you a handful of dirt when they get there. They will serve and spend and spend and spend and make decisions and never act consistent with their constituency. They're not public servants. They have failed in the role of being a public servant. And yet, Mark says that the sign of greatness is to be a servant, not a celebrity. To not be submerged in self-centeredness, but to be submerged and immersed in trying to give your life away for other people, to make an impact on other people, to do something for somebody else. James Irwin, who passed away earlier this year, was one of the astronauts on the Apollo 15 that took off in July 1971. He spent three days on the moon, 17 0.4 miles of the moon's surface were explored at that time. Erwin records that as he came back to earth, he said these words, I was returning to earth and realized that I was a servant and not a celebrity. So I am here as God's servant on planet earth to share what I have experienced that others might know the glory of God. The noun or the verb form of the word serve appears over 500 times in the Bible. Being a servant is important to God. And that goes contrary to the culture and the norm of our society. We live in a world that tells us, get all you can, can all you get, and sit on it. What's in it for me? What am I going to get out of it? What are you going to do for me? And yet the biblical lifestyle is of giving out and giving out and expressing what Christ has done in us to other people. The key phrase, the key word in the Gospel of Mark is the word straightway or immediately. I think if you have King James, it will translate straightway. Look at chapter 1 and let me just point out some of these times. It's used 42 times 
in the Gospel of Mark, either immediately or straightway. Let's just look at a few in chapter 1, verse 10. And immediately coming up out of the water, verse 12, and immediately the Spirit impelled him, verse 18, and they immediately left their nets and followed him, verse 20, and immediately he called them and they left their father, verse 21, and they went to Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach, verse 28, and immediately the news about him went out everywhere. What he's saying is that Jesus never reacted, he acted. Jesus Christ never let circumstances dictate what he did. He immediately did what the Father told him to do. He called for an immediate response from people. Jesus didn't say, I want you to go away for five or six days and think about it. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's talking about right now. He drew men to a decision and to a conclusion. Mark writes to try to encourage a church that has had to go underground because of persecution, that has been accused of terrorism. They've been blamed with the burning of Rome and with the disruption of the political system. They've been accused of being antisocial because they no longer would go to the pagan festivals. They no longer would participate in immorality and idolatry. They've been accused of being immoral because of the Christian love feast. They had a unique practice in the Christian church. Men and women worshiped together. This was because Christianity was a faith that did not use temple prostitutes. And so men did not go to temples where female prostitutes were, and women did not go to temples where male prostitutes were. Men and women went to worship together, and they were accused of immorality because they thought that the men and women going to church together only meant one thing, that they were immoral. In this context, Mark writes an incredible account of the life of Christ. He talks about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Now, the word gospel is not an exclusive biblical term. It is a word that the New Testament writers took and baptized and gave it meaning, but it refers to an emperor's ministry, to the news, the good news of an emperor's victory or a hero's welcome. The gospel was ushered in by John the Baptist. John came on the scene somewhere between 26 and 28 A.D., and he burst onto that scene a fulfillment of prophecy. Malachi and Isaiah both specifically said that there would be a forerunner to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said that John the Baptist would be the greatest man ever born of woman. He was a preacher. He was God-anointed. He had an uncompromising message. And he had one consuming passion. And that was to bring men and women to repentance to prepare them for the coming Messiah. I like what Vance Havner said. He wrote this in the 30s. You would think he had written it last week. He said, We are in a day of nice preaching. Sam Jones and Billy Sunday would horrify our delicate taste nowadays, which is rather strange considering that our taste for books, music, television, movies are not exactly refined. Apparently, we want elegance in the pulpit. But elegance has not always been the pulpit tradition. Amos at Bethel and John the Baptist in the wilderness would hardly qualify. The New Testament is not a textbook for the dainty, elegant school. Its language is not classical Greek, but the speech of the marketplace. 
It's about time for some colorful preacher to recover the lost weapons of sarcasm and satire and deal with the devil's imps as demons and not daffodils. We don't like preachers to talk about hell, and we don't like preachers to talk about judgment, and we don't like preachers to call people to holiness and to commitment. That's offensive to us. Every Sunday in churches, people get offended because the preacher stepped on their toes, and yet they're never offended by God's name being taken in vain and then paying to go to those movies. They're never offended by what they pipe into their homes on television and on cable. They're never offended by the fiction books that they buy in the bookstore. They're never offended by the name of Jesus being slandered all across this earth. They're never offended by the things they read, see, and hear, by violence and by corruption and by crime and by immorality and by adultery and by homosexuality and abortion. They're not offended by that, but they are offended when God's man speaks God's word without apology. That's wrong. That's wrong. The church must recover the lost art of preaching without apology. Sunday school teachers must recover the lost art of asking people to make a stand without apology. John was out of place. And any church or any pulpit or any teacher that preaches the Word of God without apology is going to look out of place. John looked out of place in his clothing. He didn't wear the nicest clothes. You can look at that account and just get an image of it. Just kind of makes you itch all over, doesn't it? Just to read about his clothing. He was out of place in the wilderness. He should have been on Madison Avenue preaching at a good PR man. I get information almost daily from evangelists. <laughs> and I tell you what, they got the slickest PR of anybody. I mean, I, I get a letter from some of Every week somebody else is telling me I ought to use them. And why ought to use them? And I mean, they got four color, and they got pictures of the dogs and the frogs and the hamster and the parrots and everything else and all these nice little wonderful pictures and got all these accounts of all these wonderful jobs they do. Uh, you know, I wonder if John the Baptist, I don't know how he made it without a PR man. What did he do before mass mailing? He was out of touch. John the Baptist was not a mover and a shaker in the religious circles. He didn't have the ear of the denominational leadership. He didn't have the counsel and the wisdom of those who were in the religious circles. But he had something that made people go all the way across Judea, that made people leave their comfort and their pleasures and their home and take their time and take a treacherous journey through the wilderness to hear John preach a gospel. I wish we had that kind of preacher again today. I wish we had a John here today. A smog expert in Los Angeles was asked what Los Angeles would be able to do about the smog, and he said, only a wind from somewhere else can dispel this condition. Only a wind of the Spirit is going to change the condition of this country. You can elect whoever you want to as president. You can elect Clinton. You can elect Bush. You can elect Perot. You can elect me. I, everybody else has decided to run, so, you know. But folks, I'm going to tell you something. Electing presidents and congressmen don't change a nation. God changes a nation. And God changes a nation when God's people get serious about the things of God and stand for something that is right instead of just complaining about everything that is wrong. There needs to be a wind of the Spirit the church today is a non-profit 
organization. We don't have any prophets today. We don't have people who speak the Word of God. And here's John. Boy, he burst on the scene. He is a man's man. He is God's man. And he gets them to leave Jerusalem and come down to the wilderness to hear him preach. I'd like to have a tape of John's preaching because I can't get some of our members out of bed on Sunday to come hear me preach. Much less to go a 20-mile journey to come hear somebody else preach. In fact, a lot of preachers in America today don't have enough of a word from God to make anybody want to get out of bed and go hear him preach. Got dry sermons from dry preachers to dry people, and everybody leaves the church dusty. We need a word from God. We need God to speak to us. We don't need any more PR. We need to go and realize that we are in fact living in a wilderness. Mankind is barren, hopeless, lost, empty, dry, and he needs a relationship with Christ. Verse 1 tells us that it is the gospel of Jesus that is to be proclaimed. Verse 2 tells us that John came to fulfill prophecy. Verse 3 tells us that he came to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. And verse 4 tells us that he came to preach repentance. Now there's a threefold aspect to John's message. First of all is confession. Confession. Verse 5, he says, confessing their sins. Literally confessing out. Verbally acknowledging that they were sinners. The second part of his message was repentance. Preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That word could translate for the pardon, for the cancellation, for the blotting out of sins. John began his ministry with the message of repentance. Jesus began his ministry with repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The last words that Jesus ever spoke to the church are recorded in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and it was repent or else. All through God's Word, you see a singular word that rises above all other words to call us to repentance. The word is not rededication, the word is not remorse, it's repentance. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now who did John speak repentance to? He spoke repentance to people that didn't think they needed to repent. The Jewish people were the most religious people on the face of the earth. They had the law, they had the first five books, they had the words of the prophets, they had the Psalms of David. They didn't think they needed anything. They were God's select people. Messiah was going to come through them. And yet, before Messiah could come, God had to send a forerunner, a herald, to prepare the way and let them know that they needed to repent. A herald was one who was sent out in front of great important Roman officials. They would pick up the rocks that were in the way that would hinder travel. They would fill in the potholes. They would ride into the city and announce that a great person was on their way. John stands as a man above all men and he cries out, repentance. I look through the Scripture and I find that all the way through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is the word repentance. Noah did not stand on the steps of the ark and preach something good is going to happen to you today. 
Amos was not confronted by the high priest for proclaiming confession is possession, just name it and claim it. Jeremiah was not put into the pit for preaching, I'm okay, you're okay. Daniel was not thrown into the lion's den for telling people that possibility thinking could move mountains. John was not forced to preach in the wilderness and eventually beheaded because he preached, Smile, God loves you. The two prophets of the tribulation and revelation will not be killed for preaching, God is in his heaven and everything is beautiful. They all had a singular message that can be summed up in one word, repent. Why should you repent? Yes, God loves you. Why should you repent? Because of sin. There needs to be confession, and then there needs to be repentance. We have to repent over anything that takes precedent over Jesus in our hearts. Anything that rivals God for control of our life, anything that stands in the way of us being obedient to God, that requires repentance. And when you repent, things begin to change. First thing that changes is you have a new relationship with God. You are alienated, now He's become your father. The second thing is you have a new relationship with your past. It's wiped out. People say, oh, if I could just live my life over. Friend, you don't need to live your life over. You just need to get a new life. And let God wipe out your old one. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as what? White as snow. God forgives and God forgets. God takes away the sins of our past. We have a new relationship with our future. We have a home in heaven. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Who's He preparing it for? For people who have repented. We have a new relationship with our family, the family of God. We have brothers and sisters in the family of God. We have koinonia and fellowship with one another. We have a new relationship with Satan. Disengagement takes place. We are no longer a part of the family of Satan, bound for a Christless hell. We have changed relationship with Satan. He no longer has power over our lives. We've been given victory over death and hell and the grave. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's a new relationship with Satan. We have a new relationship with ourselves. We're new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We have a new relationship with the world. The Scripture says, do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. The Scripture says, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And finally, you have a new relationship with sin. It's been forgiven. It's been washed away. You used to love sin, and now you loathe it. There's a different perspective on life when repentance comes. And then confession and repentance leads to baptism. Baptism is that tangible sign of dedication. It's that outward sign of cleansing and commitment. The baptism that John offered was a baptism of repentance that was said, I am getting right with God because I want to be prepared when the Messiah comes. It was a recognition that John was the forerunner it was a recognition that Jesus Christ was about to come and fulfill all prophecy related to the Messiah. It was not a baptism for salvation. His was a baptism of repentance, of confessing sin, to get right and to get ready so that God's man could come. So that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, could come. 
And John said, I want you to be baptized because a change of heart produces a changed life. There's a different direction. John prepared for Jesus to fulfill. There's a change. This was a radical departure from the Jewish custom for a Jew to be baptized as a sign of repentance. And so the message of Mark is clear. He tells us that the message is you have to hear the Word. You have to repent and be saved. You have to receive the Lord and you have to be obedient and follow Him. And that begins with baptism. The prophet Ezekiel said, But if the wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Turning away. Let me ask you, has there been a point in your life where you confessed that you were a sinner? where you came face to face with the Holy Spirit of God, and the Holy Spirit of God brought conviction into your heart. It may have been a worship service. You may have been watching a religious service on TV. Somebody may have walked up to you with a track. You may have turned on Christian radio station. Any number of ways. But somewhere, the Holy Spirit of God came to your heart and spoke to you, and you realized, I am a sinner. I've sinned against God. I'm separated from God. There's a great gap between me and the Father, and I can't bridge it. I can't be good enough. I can't go to church enough. I can't be baptized enough to straighten this out. There's a gap. And I confess that I am a sinner. It may have been a long confession. It may have been just, God save me, I'm a sinner. Whatever. There was repentance. That is that you came to the point of turning around and walking in a new direction. You were heading one way. Repentance means to turn around. And you just turned around and started walking in another direction. You took an about face with your life. It may have meant a change in friends. It may have meant a change in occupation. It may have meant a change in direction. But there was a change in your life as a result of repentance. You got right with God. What God said was true, everything changed because of that. Repentance. And then, baptism. Maybe you've confessed and you've asked Christ in your life, but you never made it public with anybody. You say, well, that's just a personal matter. It is. But Jesus said, he that will not confess me before men, I'll not confess before my Father who's in heaven. And you need to follow the Lord in baptism, not so you can be saved, but because it's a matter of obedience to God that you do it. It says, I have died to my old way of life so I can be raised up to walk with a new way of life. It doesn't mean that you won't ever make any mistakes. It doesn't mean you won't ever blow it. It means that you've died to your old self. You have to do that every day, but baptism pictures it. It's a witness. It's a testimony on the outside, it's tangible evidence of what's taking place in the heart. Now, if you've not done that, I want to encourage you to do it this morning. But you may be here and you've already done that and you've gone all the way through. In fact, it's been so long, you've even forgotten whether the water was hot or cold, whether it was a creek or a baptistry. But let me ask you a question. Is there something this morning that you need to repent of? Is there an attitude towards somebody. It may be towards your wife. It may be towards your husband. 
It may be towards your children. Is there an attitude towards somebody that's not right between you and them? I mean, you just can't look them in the eye anymore. You can't talk to them anymore. It's strained. It's pulled apart. And there needs to be repentance. You know what's going to keep you from doing that? One word, pride. Pride's going to keep you from doing that. Is there an action that you're involved in? Maybe you're doing something illegal. Maybe you're doing something unethical. Maybe you're doing something that's questionable as far as your integrity is concerned. Maybe you're gossiping. Maybe you have a bitter spirit. I don't know what it is. Is there an attitude? Is there an action that you need to repent of today? To be right with God and to be prepared for the coming of Jesus, is there something that you need to get right today? Is there somebody you need to go to? Do you need to come and kneel down at the front? Do you need to take a staff member by the hand and say, I need you to pray with me. I'm really struggling with something. Do you need to leave here and write a letter to somebody? Do you need to leave here and make a phone call to someone and confess to them that you've had a bitter attitude? Have you been resentful? Have you not been submissive to whatever authority figure might be in your life? What's it been? Now here's the key. Private sin. Private confession. Public sin, public confession. If your sin's been an attitude of your heart and nobody else knows it, then you and the Father can deal with it and straighten it out. You don't need to come and confess it to anybody. But if your problem has been with somebody, you cannot get it right by just getting it right with God. Because it's not right with God until it's right with the other person. You see, that's where we've let people off the hook. We said, well, just confess it and get it right with God and everything will be okay. That's not true. That's not biblical. You're not right until you're right with God and with your fellow man. There's a horizontal and a vertical relationship. And there may be some repentance that's required on your part this morning. Would you stand with heads bowed and eyes closed? Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.